As you came in, there was a sheet that looked like this, and it's also on your electronic device. Today it says pilot, and then it says faultless. Not that he was faultless, but he's facing somebody that's faultless, and we're going to talk about that today. Now let's take a minute and let's review the steps to the crucifixion. Pastor Matt and I have teamed up on this, and we've taken, this is the third week now, to talk about the trial of Jesus, and it was a mock trial. It was, it was an illegal affair from the start, and I covered the illegality and injustice of it last time. So the whole picture kind of looks like this, just walking through. Jesus was betrayed by a friend, a former disciple, arrested by the hierarchy of the Jews with the support of a Roman cohort. That's about 480 soldiers. He was taken after midnight to Annas' house. He was the former high priest. Annas may have still been pulling the strings among the Sanhedrin. And then from Annas, or Annas, he went to his son-in-law's house, Caiaphas. He was the official high priest. There at Caiaphas' house, Peter denied him three times. There at Caiaphas' house, they sought false testimony but couldn't get any agreement among the witnesses. So finally, in order to get the thing moving, moving, Jesus settled it by answering Caiaphas' question. It's put it to him this way in Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man coming at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? This was the definition of blasphemy for someone to declare divine origin, to be from heaven and call God his personal father. And then to use those words, I am, because that's what, that's who encountered Moses in the wilderness there uh, and uh, gave him his call. I am. So sometime then before sunup, they arrived to Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator or governor. We talked about him last week. His sole responsibility was to maintain what was known as Pax Romana and by any means necessary. Roman peace. Well, they did maintain Roman peace to a degree and they did it at the end of a double-edged short sword and under the, under the heels of their hobnailed boots. It was a rough peace, but they did maintain it. We went through this hypocrisy of this situation in detail last week regarding the priest and the leaders. Uh, they were maintaining their separation from the Gentile contamination uh, because they wanted to be able to be ceremonially clean. You see, this was the preparation day for the Passover that would be roughly six o'clock in the evening. And they wanted to be visibly, publicly seen to be clean. They had to eat the Passover meal. So if we Think about it, it was okay to conspire to commit murder as long as you didn't contaminate yourself publicly. You know, people are watching. <laughs> they forgot about the fact that God was watching. So they arrived to Pilate. What did he do? Well, he, he sought to avoid the situation by telling them it was a matter of their religious law and that he was not interested. When he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him up to Herod Antipas, who was in town at that time. And, uh, he, but Antipas just sent him right back. Pilate knew this. He knew that they had delivered him out of envy, so he tried to use their Passover custom of releasing a prisoner at that time. And so he was confident that this, this uh, wandering itinerant miracle worker and do-gooder, they would certainly release him because he also had in prison at that time the notorious insurrectionist thief and murderer. His name was Barabbas. 
No, uh, release Barabbas to us and crucify Jesus. They thought his crimes were so great, he causes trouble, he encourages the people not to pay taxes, and he claims to be a king. Now, the only one of those three that was true was his claim to be a king, but it wasn't the kingdom they were thinking about. It wasn't like he wanted to usurp Caesar and kick him out. He was talking about a kingdom of the heart. He came to be the kingdom of our soul, the kingdom of our life, and to have first place in our heart. At least it wasn't political the first time that he came. When he comes the second time, it'll be a horse of a different color. But that's the way it is. They said he causes trouble and that he encourages people not to pay taxes. He did the opposite. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God. Now we come to the last part of the trial and I want us to stand again. I'm giving you a workout this morning, getting your corpuscles going. So why don't you just stand right up once more. I am going to read down through verse number 10 myself. Chapter 19, verse, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to join me on verse 11 and read through verse 16, if you would please. And so let me begin. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to, him, said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to raise you, to release you? Verse 11, join me. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Would you bow your heads for prayer? And Father, we are in your presence once again. We look at this last step toward Calvary as we look at the final judgment before Pilate. And Pilate knew that he was innocent, but he feared the people. And it's always a snare to fear man more than, snare, than fear God. And so no matter he, how much he tried to wash his hands of the situation, he was guilty. But Lord, we're all guilty. None of us can wash our hands 
of the sin that nailed him to the cross. And I thank you that Jesus, you came, you lived, you were innocent, you were faultless, yet you substituted yourself for us and you died on the cross. Father, thank you for this truth. Help us now as we apply it and help me as I expound it. And I pray for those that are believers today to fall more deeply in love with you. Those who have yet to come to faith, may this be the day that they call on Jesus to be their Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to note that it says three times in our passage, I find no fault in him. Back in 1838, 19.4, and 19.6. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19, Pilate's wife had a daydream. It was a fit. And she sent word to Pilate and she said that Jesus is a righteous man. He's an innocent man. Don't have anything to do with him. This word, this righteous, this word, and I've chosen the word faultless this morning. And uh, so I did a little homework and I've looked up English words that we use that are synonyms of the word faultless. He's above reproach. He's accurate, blameless, clean, correct, crimeless, errorless, exemplary, faithful, flawless, guiltless, harmless, ideal, immaculate, impeccable, inculpable, innocent, intact, irreproachable, perfect, pure, right, sinless, spotless, stainless, supreme, unblemished, unguilty, unspotted, unsullied, and whole. That's Jesus. Because you see, Jesus was innocent. Amen for the innocence of Jesus this morning. Amen. He was faultless. (laughs) But in spite of his innocence, notice the further steps to the cross. There is this first step of scourging in verse number one, Pilate failed in seeking to release Jesus through the exchange for a real criminal Barabbas. And so maybe he could play on their sympathies and he would flog him and release him. In fact, his intentions are clarified in Luke 23, 22. He said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Therefore, I will chastise him and let him go. He thought, I'll just, man, I'll make a bloody mess out of him. Stand him up here. They'll feel bad and they'll let him go. They didn't. The Romans, brother, would you bring the brown box up here? The Romans had three levels of flogging. Three levels of flogging. Thank you, sir. And what they did in the flogging is there were three levels, and the first level was called the fustigatio. It was a lighter beating for lesser offenses. It was like a warning. Boy, don't do that again, or it's going to be worse. They had a second level called the flogelatio. It was a brutal flogging for more serious crimes, and it was an actual punishment meted out according to the crime that was committed. And then there was the third level, the worst one, called verberatio, and it was the most terrible of all, which was administered as part of the preliminary uh, actions to the crucifixion. The verberatio has been described this way. The victim was stripped, bound to a post or pillar, and beaten by a number of torturers until the latter grew tired and the flesh of the victim hung in bleeding shreds. 
In the provinces such as Judea, this was the task of soldiers. In the case of slaves or criminals such as Jesus, scourges or whips were used. The leather thongs often fitted with a spike or several pieces of bone or lead to form a chain. And it is not surprising to hear that prisoners not infrequently collapsed and died under this procedure. That Jesus received this fearful examination as the prelude to crucifixion is certain, and it may have been what the people saw when he said, Behold the man. But I want to show you something this morning. Somebody said, Pastor, let's don't get real graphic here now. Well, you know, I just want to show you this this morning because... Uh, We allow ourselves to watch all kinds of things and behold all kinds of things, but we really just need to have a constant trip to the cross to remember what happened there. We really do. You say, well, I got young people in this room and teenagers. Yeah, well, they're watching and doing and observing and participating in things that are awful. And I just want to tell you, the cross was awful. And this is one style of a flagellum that they use. And this one's, this one's made, this supposedly one of the ones like what they would have had. And then this is the one that seems more reasonable to me. It's longer and it is made with uh, just common leather straps, but it would have had woven into it the bones, the pieces of metal, anything they could that would inflict greater pain, pieces of lead. They would have woven that into him and then they would have beaten him. The Jews had a policy that you never beat anybody more than 40 stripes, so they always stopped at 39. The Romans had no such compunction. They just beat them until they got tired of beating them. And many times the person at the post died before they ever got to the cross. There are records in Josephus that they hung them up anyway, just as an example, even though they were already dead, just as an example. So this was a terrible, terrible beating that Jesus took. And uh, we don't need to shy away from the truth and understand what happened to Jesus. There was the scourging. This is what went on. Uh, many uh, theologians, including Don Carson, who's quite, quite well known, and he's one of my favorites, they believe that Jesus may have received the lighter fustigatio at the point of Pilate's presentation, and then later the, the verberatio in addition before his execution. So there was this awful beating that he took. Now we're talking about what happened there in the trial of Jesus. This happened during the trial time. So brother, why don't you come get this, but bring the other two boxes if you would. Then there was the mocking in verses two and three. The soldiers took Jesus and they began to make sport of him. They said, he's a king, isn't he? Well, let's get him a crown. A king's got to have a crown. And so let's get him a crown. And so they did. They twisted one together made of thorns and they put it on his head. Let's get him a robe, perhaps the cloak of one of the soldiers. Or that word robe can mean rug. In any event, they put a thorny crown on his head and a royal robe on his back. And they said, he really needs a scepter as well. So in the Matthew account, verse 29 of chapter 27, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And then they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And the word strike there is from a tense of verb that means over and over and over. And so some of the people, some of the men at our church here, at one time I asked for a crown of thorn. I don't know who made it, but this is a, this is a locust tree, uh, crown of thorns. This is local. You can get these right here. I mean, if you want to be mean, you can do it. And here, here, here it is, but you can see the huge thorns that are there, but here's one that's right from the area of the Middle East. And this is one a little bit more densely put together, but also with these incredible thorns on there. And so this is what they did. They, they took 
and they put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed in his hand. They beat him over the head with it. They hailed him, mocked him, spat on him. So there was the flogging, and then there was the mocking, and then there was additional cruelty, verses 4 to 6. Brother, would you come back and let me give you these if you could, and you can take them back down. Uh, the cruelty, and now in hopes uh, that their blood lust might be diminished, see, uh, Pilate stood him up, and he said this to them, behold the man, he's helpless. But their response was so simple. Crucify. The actual word that is given, it doesn't say crucify him. It literally just says crucify, crucify. But as I shared with you last week, it had to be so. I went to, to great lengths to point out that he had to be hung on a cross. He had to be lifted up. Jesus predicted it himself three times. And then he had to be lifted up according to Deuteronomy 21, 23. Uh, anyone that was guilty of these kinds of crimes of blasphemy needed to be hung up in the air, suspended between heaven and earth on a post, a pole, a tree, a cross. So he had to be hung up. Galatians 3, 10 and 13 said that he had to be hung on a cross because everyone that hangs on a tree is cursed. Cursed is everyone that hung on a tree. You see, Jesus was cursed with the curse of Genesis chapter 3. He was cursed with our sin. He was cursed of the Father. He took all of the curses. He took it on himself. There was this cruelty. And then there was apostasy. You say apostasy. Yeah, verses 7 to 15. Pilate tried once again to dismiss him. He's your problem. He's not mine. You judge him. The Jews said, we have a law. Because he claimed to be God, he must die. Pilate was fearful once again. And in Greek and Roman mythology, gods did come to earth and cohabit with people. And so he thought, whoa, wait a minute here. I mean, this guy, he, there are reports of miracles and all these things. I mean, what do we have on my, I better, I better check this out. And so he talked to him and he asked him, he said, now, where are you from? Are you as in from heaven, earth? I mean, what are you? Jesus didn't answer him a word. Pilate didn't receive what Jesus said to him the first time. And so Jesus did not answer him the second time. I'll just pull over. And I'll say this, we better act on the light we have, folks, because there's no promise of more light. There's no promise that, you, that God's going to go stand in the corner and wait on you to make up your mind or wait on you to get done with all the things you want to do in life and at the last second call on Jesus to be your Savior. I was called on to do a funeral in our church yesterday where a man did exactly that. And God in His rich and amazing mercy saved him on his deathbed. Praise God. But there's no promise of that. Oh, it is so important that we understand that Pilate got indignant and said, now are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify and the power to release you? And Jesus did answer that. And he said in verse 11, you have no power at all except what's given to you. This isn't a new statement. All the way back in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the living need to know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And by the way, he sets up over it the lowest of men. And so the most high, chapter 5, verse 21 of Daniel rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. We need to really come to grips with this. And sometimes we get upset with who gets elected, who doesn't get elected. God's got a bigger picture in mind than our, than our pipsqueak understanding of what's going on in the world. And God puts people up and God takes people down. Let me say that again. God puts people up and God takes people down. Do you understand this? This is the word of God. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. 
He said, well, where's the apostasy? Look at verse number 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, look at these words. We have no king but Caesar. Oh, the very reason that the mob turned on Jesus and went from crying out when he came in on the triumphal entry, they were saying, hail him, hail him. But now then they're standing there saying, nail him, nail him. Why? Because he wouldn't throw off the Roman rule. Because he would not use his abilities and powers and miraculous strength to set things up the way they wanted it. And so they got mad at him and they wanted him dead. Don't hail him, nail him. Now in a rage of madness, they cry out, Caesar is our king. But listen to Isaiah 26, 13. Scratch that reference down. Isaiah 26, 13. Oh, Lord, our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us. But by you only we make mention of your name. Never mind what these temporary dictators do. We know that you are ultimately our God, our king. You are the one we love. Not here. Bruce Milne says, secure in that conviction, they waited patiently through the long centuries. Speaking of Isaiah 26, they waited patiently for long centuries for the appearing of his Messiah to vindicate Israel's faith and establish his visible, his visible rule and powerfully overthrow this kingdom and rule in the whole world. But now, in a terrible moment of apostasy, that sacred trust is violated and the holy place is desecrated as the centuries of anticipation are cast aside and they say... We have no king but Caesar. It's nothing less than the abandonment of the messianic hope of Israel. Now, folks, bad things are happening in Israel today. Bad things are going on in the Middle East and have been for centuries. But I just want to tell you, 99% of the Jews in the world are not waiting on the Messiah. They're no longer looking for a Messiah figure to come. They're trying to accommodate and figure themselves out and set up their own rule on planet Earth. It started right here. We have no king but Caesar. We'll just get along the best we can in this world. And they led him away to be crucified. Oh, there's so much I'd like you to see, but I want you to see this morning as I finish the depth of one statement. This, this statement. Behold the man. Behold the man. It seems like the more you take a look at Jesus only for the sake of pity, the less you understand him. But we need to understand these truths about him. And the first one I'd like you to see is that Jesus is, was a real man. He is God with us, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. He is Emmanuel, but he's a man. He experienced our pain. John 1.14 said that the word became flesh and lived and dwelled among us. Well, the idea that God became a man is the point many people wrestle with today. But folks, that's the whole point. The whole point is, is that deity put on humanity and came into the world to relate to us and then to die for us. This Emmanuel today, it's the fact of who he was. You know, under this idea that he's a real man, we need to get the idea that his suffering was physical. He was innocent, yet he was treated as though he was guilty. And he did it for you and for me. He was slapped in the face before Annas. 
He was spat on and beaten before Caiaphas. He, Pilate scourged him and the soldiers smote him. And before they led him to Calvary, the soldiers mocked him and beat him on the head with a rod and spit in his face. And how much he suffered for us. Let's not minimize his physical suffering. Of course, it was spiritual suffering as well, being estranged from his father. But it was physical. Hebrews 2.17 and 1 Peter 4.1 says, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He was human. He hurt. He experienced pain. Johnny Erickson Tata said this, Jesus was paralyzed just like me for six hours on a cross. He was not able to move. He couldn't swat a fly. He couldn't wipe his face. He couldn't wipe the blood out of his eyes. You know what? The scourging hurt. The nails hurt. The inability to shift or move his weight for comfort on the cross was excruciating. So I asked you a question this morning in the physical world. Do you hurt? Have you experienced pain? Well, I just want to say one word to you. Emmanuel. God with us in human flesh. And he knows what it is to hurt. His suffering was relational. Not just physical. It was relational. Jesus was abused. Today there's all kinds of that. There's spousal abuse and parental abuse and schoolhouse abuse and sexual abuse and workplace abuse, verbal abuse, and on it goes. It seems endless and merciless, but, but the truth is Jesus had relational rejection. His own people rejected him, and they did all of this to him. His own disciples betrayed him. One denied him. The masses of people that he fed, the ones that he healed, the ones out of whom he cast out the demons, they lined up to say, crucify him. He predicted that they all would abandon him. They did. His own brothers did not believe in him at all until after the resurrection. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has your family abused you, misused you, mistreated you, forsaken you? I've got one word for you, Emmanuel, God with us. And then I want to share something else. His suffering was emotional, emotional. Behold the man. There he stood, barely able to stand. His appearance went beyond the pitiful to the ridiculous. The broken figure with a tattered robe and the weird spiky headdress protruding grotesquely from his head. He was more like a clown than a king. Did they pity him? No, they mocked him. I've already talked about the soldiers, but the crowds, the Bible says they wagged their heads in mockery. They ridiculed him. If you're the son of God, come down, they said. Psalm 22, 6 Predicting his predicament, I am a worm and I am no man. I'm the reproach of men and despised by the people. Isaiah 53, 3 saying, speaking of the same moment, said he is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem, esteem him. He had emotional suffering. Do we dread anything on this planet more than being made a spectacle of? Do we enjoy being made to look ridiculous or silly or weak or out of touch or out of fashion? Do we like that? I'm convinced that a lot of people are so worried about that part of it, they never share the gospel. But let me go on. And oh, horror of horrors, not to be accepted, affirmed, included on the social media platforms. Oh, what a horror. Let me just give you a little word here. This is parentheses. Get off social media and save yourself a headache and a heartache. Close parentheses and I'll move on. 
Have you been rejected, betrayed, unloved, unwanted, humiliated? I just got a word for you. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Jesus was a man. Something else, Jesus is a representative man. He was a representative man. God for us. Romans 8, 31 and 33 said, if God be for us, who against us? God was for us. It is God who justifies. Now we move from the everyday walk of life and the encounters of life. We move to the courtroom of God's justice. You see, Jesus was charged with blasphemy. That's chapter 19, verse 7. They said, he made himself the son of God. Why? It's blasphemy. Then they charged him with treason. That's chapter 19, verse 12. He made himself a king. These are the charges that were brought against Jesus. A blasphemer. He's treason. It's blasphemy against the, against the Israeli people, against the Jews. It's, it is treason against Caesar. He got to die. That, that's just all there is to it. But folks, truthfully, honestly, these are the charges against all sinning people before God. Why, these are the charges against us, you see. It's blasphemy, and everyone in the room is a blasphemer. You say, what do you mean? Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, the temptation was, you will be like God. And they believed it. We'll make our own way. We'll make our own decisions. We'll decide what's good for us. We'll be like God. We will do what we want to do. We'll set ourselves up. Thank you very much for creation and all that stuff. But hey, we got it from here. Blasphemy. And rebellion of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband and he ate. Genesis 2, 17 and 3, 6. Sin is when we are king and when we do our own thing instead of doing what God has commanded to ask or told us that we are supposed to do. Blasphemy and rebellion. In fact, everybody in this room is a blasphemous rebel before God. Because we do, that's what sin is, is to do what you want instead of what God commands. Rebellion is to know what God requires and do the opposite. Make your own, no, no, appreciate it. That's what you think. This is what I think. This is best for me. Judges said, and everyone did that which was right in whose eyes? In their own eyes. Blasphemous rebels. We are the blasphemous rebels. Jesus represents us before the justice bar of God. He's a representative man. He is God for us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. And the verse that has captured my life and my heart since the day I understood it. Is this one. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm guilty, he died. He's faultless, I'm full of fault. He's innocent, I'm a sinner. He took my place. The third and final point. His point is Jesus is the faultless man. He is a real man. He's the representative man. He is the faultless man. He had to be. If Jesus had sin of his own, he would not have been able to die for our own sins. 
Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 that every priest had to, had to offer for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people, and it never ended. It was repeated all the time. But Jesus was faultless, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins once for all. Oh, he died. He took our place. He is the faultless one. Pilate declared him to be without fault three times, but he feared man more than God, and he died and went to hell. I'm going to let somebody else make my final point here about the faultless nature of Jesus. Relief, why don't you come? Listen carefully.
And so you see, Pilate stood there making a judgment about Jesus, but the truth is, is he was being judged as he looked at innocence. You see, and he rejected. Feared man. Feared losing position. Feared all kinds of things. But he didn't fear God. You know, I wonder how many of you here this morning, you say, Pastor Phil, there was a day in my life when I understood my guilt, I understood my sin, that I was separated from God, I understood that I was the blasphemous rebel and that I needed a Savior. And I believed, I called on Him to be my Savior. Would you just raise your hand and give testimony? I have believed. Put your hands down. But now then, there are those of you that are here this morning you're still under the curse. You still are carrying the weight of blasphemy and rebellion. You're still trying to be your own God. You're still rejecting Him. But you can be saved today. It can all change right now because you've heard the truth. God proved His love toward us in that while we we're still sinning. Christ died for us. You see, innocence died for the guilty. And guilty can receive innocence. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we can receive the righteousness, the purity, holiness, and sinlessness of God through him.